This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the summer of 1838, London bricklayer William Hubbard burst into a local pub and ran to the bar. But he wasn't there for a drink. He was racing to rescue a four-legged friend. Ladies and gentlemen, for just a few shillings, step right up and pet the mutt once owned by Eliza Grimwood, the slain strumpet. Is it true the dog slept through the night while she was chopped up? <laughs> yes, but the little pup is certainly awake now, isn't he? Little thing loves a crowd. So, get out your coin purses and... Stop this at once! That animal is mine! Ah, and here we have the other dog in Eliza Grimwood's tragic life. William Hubbard, her lover and her killer. I did not kill Eliza! If it wasn't you, then who, Hubbard? I, I don't know, but I swear to you, all of you, that the murderer will pay. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our final episode on the 1838 murder of Eliza Grimwood. 
Last week, we learned about Eliza's life as a London sex worker, her tense relationship with her lover, William Hubbard, and her final date with a client whose identity was shrouded in mystery. This week, we'll cover the aftermath of Eliza's murder and the hunt for her killer. By 1838, 31-year-old Eliza Grimwood had garnered a sterling reputation as a high-end sex worker in Victorian-era London. Her select group of clients were lawyers, artists, and other members of London's elite, and she was paid handsomely for her services. Her charm and grace even earned her a nickname, the Countess. She shared a house in the London suburb of Lambeth with her lover, bricklayer William Hubbard. Hubbard was not only married, but he was also Eliza's first cousin, and he even took a cut of her profits. The pair lived with Eliza's friend and fellow sex worker Mary Glover and Glover's boyfriend William Best. The final members of the bizarre household were their housekeeper, Mary Fisher, and Eliza's darling spaniel puppy, whose name is unknown. Eliza spent the final night of her life, Friday, May 26th, at the Strand Theater, Patrons saw her being affectionate with a dapper stranger who was possibly foreign. The two of them left for Eliza's home around midnight. Housekeeper Mary Fisher let them in, but didn't get a good look at Eliza's client. He and Eliza quickly retreated to her chambers, and not a sound was heard during the night. The peace was shattered the next morning when Hubbard went into Eliza's room at 6 a.m. He discovered Eliza's body on the ground. Both the floor and the furniture were covered in her blood. As William Best alerted the police, a hysterical Hubbard ran to a local surgeon, William Henry Cook. When he saw that her throat had been slit, he came to a hurried conclusion. Ah, very unfortunate. I see this far too often. You see murders often? Not at all. It seems Miss Grimwood took her own life. What? It happens with women of her, uh, profession. Leading that sort of life eats away at one's soul. Ah, oh, poor thing. She was probably so ashamed of her sins that she thought this was her only way out. She would never! Eliza was happy, Dr. Cook. And this wound! Her neck has practically been cleaved in two! She wouldn't have the strength to do that. Are you a doctor? How can you be so sure? I know she was murdered. Dr. Cook's presumptions upset Hubbard, who vehemently denied that Eliza died by suicide. Fortunately, a police officer soon arrived to shed more light on the situation. 33-year-old Inspector Charles Field was an aspiring actor before he began his police career. Although he was young, he quickly gained his fellow officers' respect, thanks to his impeccable record and dogged determination. Field knew the Lambeth area well, and even had a passing familiarity with Eliza Grimwood. Though her job was illegal, she kept under the radar and never caused trouble, so the police largely stayed out of her affairs. Field examined the crime scene, and fortunately he was more thorough than Dr. Cook. Dr. Cook, I'm afraid I disagree with you. This is a murder. No woman, no person, would have been able to injure themselves like this. Uh, would you mind helping me turn her over? If I must. Oh my. Mr. Hubbard, 
There's a deep wound in the back of her neck. Looks like it could be from a knife or sword of some sort. So that ruffian stabbed my dear Eliza in the back. You mean the Countess's gentleman caller? The bastard killed her in the night and ran off. Hmm. Must have been quiet and quick work. Especially if nobody was woken by it. If I'd heard her scream, maybe I could have saved her. Yes, unfortunate. Mr. Hubbard, is that blood on your trousers? What do you mean by that, Inspector Field? Nothing. I'll be in touch. Inspector Field officially deemed the crime a murder and quickly had the house searched for evidence. But each of the house's knives and razors were accounted for and none were coated in blood. The inspector then made a count of Eliza's valuables. He discovered that a small amount of money may have been taken from Eliza's room, but her gold watch and expensive jewels were left in their place, as were other valuables in the house. This made robbery an unlikely motive for the killer. The only clue of note was a pair of lavender-colored gloves found in Eliza's bedroom. They were monogrammed with the initials SKR, and it wasn't clear if they belonged to Eliza. As the investigation continued indoors, crowds gathered outside Eliza's house, hoping to catch a glimpse of her body. While the residents of 12 Wellington Terrace insisted that Eliza was killed by her client, the crowd was more suspicious of Hubbard. Though he was a bricklayer by trade, locals knew him as a disagreeable drinker who relied on Eliza's profits to sustain himself. When Hubbard finally left the building, onlookers cried out, accusing him of murder. Field ordered the distraught Hubbard to stay indoors. He agreed, but insisted that Field find Eliza's mystery client. Field knew that pinning the crime on this unknown John would quell the panic and take the heat off Hubbard. But in the back of his mind, he couldn't help but think that William Hubbard was the most likely suspect. He held on to these suspicions as he continued the investigation the next day, Sunday, May 28th. He did his best to retrace Eliza's steps. He started by speaking with cab driver Joseph Spicknell, who confirmed he drove Eliza home from the theater with her client. Field pressed on to the Strand Theater, where bartenders and showgoers all confirmed that Eliza was at the theater on the night of May 26th. One particularly interesting eyewitness was a chatty 24-year-old sex worker named Catherine Edwin, who said she was one of Eliza's best friends. Eliza was with that handsome stranger again. He was dressed finely, like always, in a big hat and those absolutely marvelous little green spectacles. Had you encountered him before the night of the murder? Oh, yes. He took Eliza and me out for a coffee a few days ago at Mrs. Rosedale's in Piccadilly. Have you tried her scones? They're addictive. What can you tell me about the man, Ms. Edwin? Do you know his name? Uh, no. Or maybe I did learn it at one point, but I forgot. Eliza called him her crack-whiskered Antonio. <laughs> I've only met him a few times, and my name for him was just The Foreigner. <laughs> he was very mysterious. How are you certain he was foreign? Did he have a heavy accent? No, he spoke English well, but maybe with a slight accent. Or maybe not. I do know he spoke a few words to us in 
French. So he's a Frenchman? Or Italian. <laughs> Honestly, he could have been a Spaniard for all I know. <laughs> Miss Edwin, are you all right? <laughs> yes, of course. Why wouldn't I be? Because your dear friend was slain in her bed by a madman. It's a tragedy. An absolute tragedy. Inspector Field was puzzled by Catherine Edwin. She was flighty, sarcastic, and easily amused, which seemed unusual for the close friend of a murder victim. He visited the shop that she mentioned to speak to the owner. This person confirmed that a few days before the murder, a handsome, possibly foreign man had brought a few women in for a meal. Unfortunately, the owner couldn't confirm that the guests were Catherine, Eliza, or her mysterious client. London was a cosmopolitan city full of wealthy immigrants and attractive women, so it was possible he'd seen an entirely different group of people. This lead had proved largely fruitless. Nevertheless, he believed Catherine seemed to be an eyewitness with valuable evidence. He had her testify at the inquest into Eliza's death. The hearing began on Monday, May 29, 1838. Coroner Richard Carter presided. The proceedings started off on a grisly note as Eliza Grimwood's body was wheeled out for display. The jury watched with morbid curiosity as Dr. Cook, the surgeon who initially thought Eliza had taken her own life, revealed the extent of her injuries. Miss Grimwood was murdered around 1 a.m., she was found fully clothed, which indicates that she had already gotten dressed after her appointment. Couldn't that also indicate that carnal relations never occurred? I suppose. She has three stab wounds in her breast, her sternum, and her abdomen. There are also smaller cuts on her left hand, which could indicate she tried to fight off her attacker's blade, which was likely a knife or a dagger. And the neck wounds? Those were her cause of death. The injury on the front of her neck severed her windpipe and her cardioid artery, and the stab on the back of her neck practically split her spinal cord in two. From the looks of it, the killer may have tried and failed to saw her head off. Dr. Cook, the victim must have been in excruciating agony. How on earth can we account for the fact that nobody in her home heard her die? Miss Grimwood's lips were swollen and bruised, so it's likely that her killer clamped her mouth shut to keep her from screaming. The poor girl. The jury was shocked by the brutality that had been enacted against Eliza. The shocks would only continue when the coroner called his first suspect, William Hubbard, to the stand. We'll see what Hubbard had to say in his defense after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. On May 29, 1838, Coroner Richard Carter held an inquest into Eliza Grimwood's death. The proceedings started off with an examination of Eliza's body, where it was shown that she had suffered from great savagery. After the demonstration, her lover, William Hubbard, was the first person called for questioning. The last time Eliza and I spoke was at dinner on Friday night. We ate before I retired to my room, and she left for the Strand. Mr. Hubbard, were you aware of what your wife was doing at the theater? (sighs) She's not my wife. Eliza is the love of my life, and I was aware of her lifestyle. I wasn't pleased with it. You don't know how many times I insisted that she give it up. Would you ever hurt her physically when you argued about it? No, of course not. You're quite a tolerant man. You two had an odd union. I don't know many men who would stand for the love of their life being in Eliza's line of work. Well, she didn't give me much choice in the matter. That must have been frustrating. I wanted to ask, on the morning of the murder, I noticed a few droplets of blood on the bottom of your trousers. Could you explain where it came from? There was blood everywhere in that room, Inspector. If I killed her, I'd have been soaked in it. Now why aren't you out there looking for the blasted foreigner who did it? Thank you, Mr. Hubbard. Hubbard's defense was quite convincing, as experts agreed that Eliza's killer would have been soaked in blood. Everyone involved was also baffled by the fact that there were no bloodstains leading from Eliza's room to any of the home's exits. One possible explanation was noted by the housekeeper, Mary Fisher. Mary remembered that Eliza's client was carrying a Macintosh as he entered the home. A Macintosh was a rubberized raincoat, and if the client wore it while killing Eliza, he could have avoided staining his clothes. This revelation temporarily took the heat off of Hubbard, but he had plenty of other issues to deal with. Eliza Grimwood's brother, Thomas, soon moved into her old room to help settle her affairs and follow the case more closely. Thomas disapproved of Eliza's career and despised Hubbard, so tensions were high as Eliza's family and friends prepared for her funeral. Eliza Grimwood was buried at St. John's Church on June 1st. Hundreds of people attended, though most were gawking strangers intrigued by the murder. Eliza's brothers attended the funeral, as did Inspector Field, but Reverend Irvine of St. John's Church convinced Hubbard not to go. Mr. Hubbard, it's only going to be harder if you attend. There's an angry mob out there who have set their sights on you. If they riot, Eliza won't get the dignified ceremony she deserves. But don't you see that I have a right to be there? Unless, Reverend, do you believe that I killed Eliza too? 
That's between you and the Lord, my son. After the burial, the inquest continued. On Monday, June 4th, the courts focused their attention on Eliza's final client. To this end, they called on 24-year-old Catherine Edwin, the sex worker who told Inspector Field she knew all about the mystery man. Field found Catherine to be flighty and skittish when he first met her. But when she took the stand, she was eager to tell the jury what she knew, in dramatic detail. She claimed that, while she didn't know the foreigner's name, he was an Italian who spoke excellent English and French. He was madly in love with Eliza, and while Eliza felt similarly, their relationship was troubled. Oh, Inspector, this man was besotted with Eliza, and he had a temper. Once, he proposed to her on the Waterloo Bridge, and when she refused, he threatened to push her into the Thames. Was that the only time the foreigner showed signs of violence? No. One time, he took Eliza and me to a candy shop. He ordered everything and paid for it, too. He and Eliza talked about opera. They loved the opera, while I dug into the most scrumptious crumpet I've ever... Miss mm. Edwin, please. I apologize. The foreigner proposed to Eliza again, but she said no, and you'll never believe what he did next. What did he do, Miss Edwin? He whipped off his overcoat in an absolute fury, and oh, it was so frightening. A knife clattered to the ground from his pocket. You don't suppose that's what he used to kill Eliza, do you? Heavens! I feel just dreadful. (gasps) Catherine Edwin's testimony was spellbinding, and she dropped morsel after morsel of evidence that painted the mysterious foreigner as a murderous, jilted lover. But there was one person at the inquest who'd had enough of Edwin, Eliza's best friend and housemate, Mary Glover. I thought maybe one day this foreigner will wear Eliza down and whisk her off to some grand Italian villa. I won't listen to any more of this nonsense. Miss Glover, if you cannot observe in silence, you will be removed. Then recall me to the stand so that I may testify against this lying wench. How dare you, Inspector Field? This is outrageous. I'm trying to help my dear sweet Eliza. (laughs) Inspector, Eliza was my dear friend. I lived with her and I knew all of her other friends. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have never seen Miss Edwin before in my life. Field had questions about Catherine Edwin from the moment he met her. But she was also the closest thing he had to a star witness, thanks to her seemingly limitless knowledge about Eliza and the foreigner. After more digging, investigators discovered that Catherine Edwin was actually a 16-year-old girl who was pretending to be an older, more interesting person. It's possible she really did see Eliza at the Strand Theater on the night she was murdered, but all of her other stories were complete fabrications. We don't know why Catherine so gleefully inserted herself into the narrative, but once her lies were discovered, she was quickly removed. The next witness to take the stand was Harriet Chaplin, a sex worker who identified herself as Eliza Grimwood's niece. 
We don't know which of Eliza's siblings was her parent, but Harriet's testimony cast some dark shadows upon Hubbard instead of the mysterious foreign client. Harriet had spent some time tailoring Eliza's wardrobe, and over the years, she had witnessed some alarming fights between Eliza and Hubbard. Hubbard was always trouble. Even if friends were around, he'd smack Eliza across the face. Lord only knows what he'd do when they were alone. Miss Chaplin, can you tell me what they quarreled about most often? The men, obviously. There was one fellow from Birmingham who just adored Eliza. He was quite wealthy and always treated her like a queen. They even wrote each other love letters, which Hubbard was furious about. Furious enough to take action, Miss Chaplin? Oh, when Eliza flirted with the idea of running off to Birmingham, Hubbard swore he'd kill them both. Miss Chaplin, can you identify the Birmingham man by name? Hmm, no, but I believe I know his profession. He makes swords. On the one hand, Chaplin's testimony revealed that Hubbard was furious about Eliza's emotional affair and that he'd made a death threat against her. On the other, it also pointed to a possible identity for Eliza's mystery client, a wealthy out-of-towner who manufactured swords. The coroner had already suggested that a small sword may have been the murder weapon, so Inspector Field eagerly followed the lead. Field soon discovered that the client was a man named William Osborne, who had made a considerable fortune in the weaponry business. When Field tracked him down, Osborne admitted to being one of Eliza's regulars. He claimed he always visited her when he came to London. Osborne had also been to her Wellington Terrace home on a few occasions, but the last time he'd seen Eliza was three weeks before the murder, and he'd never brought a sword to one of their trysts. Though Osborne's connection to the murder weapon was a red herring, Harriet Chaplin's testimony still held value. Her claim that Hubbard had threatened Eliza reawakened Inspector Field's suspicions about him. Field nearly had these suspicions confirmed by a new lead. An older man named John Owen claimed that on the night of the murder, he took a walk along Eliza Street. In one of the doorways, he saw a man with blood-stained hands crying out toward the heavens for forgiveness. Field hoped that the man Owen saw was Hubbard. So did Eliza's brother Thomas, who firmly believed Hubbard was the guilty party. However, despite the excitement, it soon became obvious that John Owen was mentally unwell. He had likely fabricated the entire story. For the second time, Inspector Field had gotten his hopes raised by a liar. John Owen and Catherine Edwin weren't the only frauds who impeded the investigation. The London police received dozens of visitors and letters from anonymous tipsters, each claiming to know who killed Eliza Grimwood. Yet they were all dead ends. Almost two weeks passed since the murder on May 27th, and Field got no closer to catching the killer. Around June 10th, Coroner Richard Carter presented his final statement on the matter. After careful consideration, he determined that despite the rumors about Hubbard, Eliza's mystery client was still the most likely killer. I believe this brutal slaying was the result of a transaction gone disastrously wrong. The likely scenario is, after intercourse, 
Ms. Grimwood's client, who may be a foreigner, attempted to leave without compensating her. When Ms. Grimwood desperately tried to stop him, he whipped out his weapon and slashed at her throat until her pitiful protests were silenced forever. The coroner felt there wasn't enough evidence to connect Hubbard to the murder. There also wasn't any weaponry in the house that matched the blade used to kill Eliza. But Richard was also openly judgmental of Eliza's career. It's possible the idea that her work had gotten her killed was merely a cautionary tale that made the most sense to him. Either way, it was a demoralizing blow to Inspector Field and his suspicions of Hubbard, but his luck would soon turn around. The police received a letter so shocking it would land William Hubbard in jail. Next, we'll cover the damning letter and William Hubbard's fight to prove his innocence. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now, back to the story. In June of 1838, 30-year-old William Hubbard was unable to take two steps in the London streets without someone calling him a murderer. His lover of 10 years, Eliza Grimwood, had been brutally murdered the month before, and he was one of two prime suspects. Eliza was a sex worker, and the official investigation had focused on her final client, a mysterious, wealthy, and possibly foreign man. But in the court of public opinion, Hubbard was the guilty party. He had initially tried to wait out the heat by hiding within his home, but this was no longer an option for him. Eliza's 47-year-old brother, Thomas Grimwood, had moved into Eliza's old room to settle her affairs. Thomas hated Hubbard and was making him as miserable as possible for as long as he could. Thomas, what the hell is going on? I just saw some woman leaving the house with Eliza's silver jewelry box. Ah, yes. She drove a hard bargain, but I managed to sell it for 80 pounds. Sell it? I'm putting Eliza's things up for auction. There's been some interest, and frankly, I can't bear to see these remnants of her lifestyle cluttering up the place. But these are our memories. Eliza would have wanted me to have them. No, Hubbard. They belonged to Eliza, and since you never married her, they belong to me. This is an outrage! I won't just sit here and watch you rip apart the home we built together! Then maybe you should leave. I'll be ripping it apart either way. Thomas Grimwood and his brother sold Eliza's furniture and jewelry, and even tried to auction off the puppy that Hubbard had gifted her. 
Their middling did not stop there. Thomas Grimwood gave the investigators love letters Osborne, the swordmaker, had sent Eliza, hoping to make Hubbard look even more guilty. Thomas also told Inspector Field that Hubbard was planning to leave town, placing Hubbard under even deeper suspicion. Based on Thomas's reports, Inspector Field staked out Hubbard and Eliza's home late on the night of June 10th. He witnessed Hubbard sneak away, hail a horse-drawn cab, and visit two different houses before returning to his home at 12 Wellington Terrace. While it wasn't exactly the sign of a man on the run, Field still reported his findings to his superiors. Constable, Thomas Grimwood strongly believes Hubbard is planning an escape from London. I've been tracking his movements, and I know we don't have much evidence to connect him to the killing, but... Inspector Field, you need to arrest William Hubbard at once. Well, that's what I've been saying for weeks. What changed your mind? This letter we just received. It appears to be from the man Miss Grimwood was with the night she was killed. The letter was signed by John Walter Cavendish, who said he was a man of means and knew Eliza well. He claimed he was often mistaken for a foreigner due to his tan, the result of living in the West Indies for seven years. In the letter, Cavendish claimed he and Eliza had a loud disagreement, which woke Hubbard up. Hubbard stormed in and cursed loudly at both Eliza and Cavendish. Fearful for his life, Cavendish escaped, leaving behind a ring and a pair of black gloves. The letter both identified Eliza's lover and implied that Hubbard was the one who killed her after Cavendish escaped. While no ring was found at the crime scene, a pair of gloves had been recovered. The gloves were lavender-colored, not black, but investigators hadn't released any public information about the gloves at all, so they still considered the letter to be a break in the case. Inspector Field arrested Hubbard at 3 a.m. on Monday, June 11th. That afternoon, a jury reassembled at London's Union Hall for a continuation of the inquest. As Hubbard was brought there in handcuffs, an angry mob waited for him at the hall's entrance. Hubbard had the whole city against him, and the investigators inside were now convinced he was the killer too. Is it not true, Mr. Hubbard, that you slipped out of Wellington Terrace on the night of June 10th with the intention of leaving London? No! It was only to visit my mother and brother. I was trying to see if I could stay with them, but they couldn't accommodate me. So I went back to my home. Were you unaware of how suspicious this seemed to Thomas Grimwood? Thomas was the one who urged me to go. He even gave me 30 shillings to leave, probably so he could keep ripping apart my home. Hubbard's escape attempt appeared to be a simple setup designed to make him look guilty. Thomas Grimwood clearly had it in for him. To cast further doubt on Hubbard's guilt, the letter from Cavendish implicating Hubbard was also flawed. For one, Cavendish described Hubbard as a raving madman who berated Eliza. But Eliza's housemates and neighbors claimed that they hadn't heard any sort of argument on the night of the murder. In addition, the letter mentioned black gloves when the ones left at Eliza's were lavender-colored and monogrammed with the letters SKR. These discrepancies cast doubt upon the letter itself, and Inspector Field decided he had to find this Cavendish to determine what he really knew. He went to the post office where the letter was delivered. 
There, an employee informed Field that the letter had been sent by a young man named McMillan. After obtaining a sample of McMillan's handwriting, Field felt that there was a strong possibility that McMillan had been Eliza's mysterious client and that he had used the alias of Cavendish to write the letter. However, his hunch was incorrect. McMillan was merely a 25-year-old Londoner who worked as a lowly assistant at his father's stationery store. It was unlikely that he was the wealthy foreigner who romanced Eliza. Likelihoods aside, McMillan was questioned before the jury at Union Hall on June 16th. The nervous young man denied ever writing the letter, and his father insisted that McMillan was home on the night of the murder. Much to Inspector Field's dismay, the jury didn't believe McMillan was Eliza's mystery man. It seemed much more likely that he had written the letter as a mean-spirited prank, but even that was hard to prove. It seemed the investigation had once again reached a dead end. With the investigation stalled, the jury reconvened on June 19th to settle the matter of William Hubbard's guilt. Mr. Hubbard, after careful consideration, due to lack of concrete evidence, I have no choice but to release you from confinement. It is my hope that you will continue to provide investigators with assistance as we work to solve this murder. Thank you, sir. I promise you I will. Almost a month had passed after the murder, and Inspector Field was no closer to finding Eliza's killer. The only clues left to pursue were the lavender gloves left at the crime scene. The gloves were monogrammed with the initials SKR, and Field hoped the mysterious SKR was his man. On June 24th, he traced the gloves to a wealthy young man named Skinner who ran a tobacco business and frequently visited sex workers all over the city. Mr. Skinner, do you admit that these gloves are yours? Oh, I do believe they are. I've been wondering where they were. I thought perhaps I'd left them at the home of a lady I sometimes, uh, visit. Was the lady in question Eliza Grimwood? The dead girl? Oh, no. My mistress's name is Harriet Chaplin. Harriet Chaplin was the sex worker who was also Eliza's niece. She'd originally accused Hubbard of making death threats against Eliza. Field now wondered if perhaps she had had a more sinister connection to the murder. On July 7, 1838, Harriet Chaplin was questioned for a second time. She confirmed that the gloves had been left at her home, but she couldn't remember which client had left them. Since they were men's gloves and far too large for her hands, she had been using them to polish her silver. Eliza visited Harriet in the months before her murder, and Harriet suspected that perhaps Eliza had taken the gloves for one reason or another. It wasn't exactly a satisfying answer, but the court didn't choose to pursue the matter further. After both Skinner and Harriet Chaplin were cleared of any wrongdoing, the official investigation was over. Inspector Field's last report was dated July 14th, and he moved on to other cases. However, he was never able to fully give up on solving the murder of Eliza Grimwood. In the years that followed, he continued to probe at new leads. They ranged from anonymous letters, to criminals drunkenly confessing to the crime, to handsome foreigners who happened to resemble Eliza's mystery man. Inspector Field put in his best efforts to connect these new clues to the murder, but nothing ever came of them. 
The case remains unsolved to this very day. Meanwhile, William Hubbard never fully recovered from the scandal that surrounded him after Eliza's murder. He failed to reclaim Eliza's property from her brothers, and he eventually moved out to live with his family and resume his work as a bricklayer. Almost three years after Eliza's murder, he contracted a lung disease and passed away on February 22, 1841. He was only 33 years old. A newspaper claimed that at the moment of his death, Hubbard put a hand to his heart and called out Eliza's name. But of course, that could have been just one of many rumors that swirled around the murder of Eliza Grimwood. Hubbard may have been one of the only people who knew the truth about Eliza's killing. After his death, the world was left with naught but questions, which keeps the haunting memory of Eliza Grimwood alive today. After reviewing the facts, I feel that despite being cleared, William Hubbard is the most likely suspect in Eliza's murder. He was a jealous man who resented Eliza's sex work, even if he made money off of it. Her possessions were valuable enough for her brothers to auction off, but if they hadn't gotten in the way, maybe Hubbard would have made even more money off of Eliza once she was dead. And finally, if the story of him threatening to kill Eliza is true, then there was also an established threat against her life. Well, I'd see your perspective, but I have to disagree. There wasn't enough physical evidence to connect Hubbard to the murder, and while his relationship with Eliza was tense, there are also many reports that they were madly in love. It's far more likely that Eliza's mystery client killed her, and perhaps fled the country as soon as the crime was complete. The 1838 murder of Eliza Grimwood hung like a specter over London for decades. When Jack the Ripper began his reign of terror 50 years later in 1888, many older Londoners felt they were a chilling reminder of Eliza's death. Eliza's murder may have even inspired a controversial scene in Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist. The scene was criticized at the time for being graphic, over-the-top, and unnecessary, but maybe Dickens just drew inspiration from the dangerous world he lived in. Eliza's influence was pronounced, and she was a confident, charming woman who made the best of her circumstances. While sex work in Victorian London had its risks, she managed to build a happy and financially secure life, thanks to the men who enjoyed her company. She lived a charmed life, yet her death was anything but. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the Eliza Grimwood murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Ripper of Waterloo Road by Jan Bondesen to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Unsolved Murders for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. 
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Amin Osman, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Jen Wong, Harris Markson, Dan Velasquez, Joe Hernandez, and Susanna Corrington. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs> <laughs>